Would you please stand with me as we read our scripture this morning from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. But I am afraid that, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he's observing what's going on in their fellowship, and he's, and he's concerned about them, he's fearful. And so he writes them these words by way of warning. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm going to start this morning by recounting an Old Testament passage and an account of the people of Israel, and it's going to be somewhat of a paraphrase, but it's a a passage that's very familiar to many of us and others maybe less familiar. It's the story of what happened to Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. So you had God promising Abraham that his descendants would... 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham, be delivered out of bondage to a nation. And when the time was right, in that, at the end of that 430 years, God did just exactly what he had promised to Abraham would, he would do. And that is he took Israel out of Egypt by, by, the, by way of delivering on Egypt judgment. So we had the plagues and we had the whole interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. He gave, God gave Moses to lead the people out and to be their deliverer and he, and he judged Pharaoh severe, severely and so the people went out from Egypt. They were delivered through the Passover. Their children didn't die in the Passover They were delivered out of the country to the Red Sea. Pharaoh and the army pursued. They were delivered through the Red Sea miraculously as the water split apart. They walked across on dry land. They got to the other side. Pharaoh was coming through and his army was destroyed in the Red Sea by God's power. Then they walked on and they received water miraculously. Then they received manna miraculously. Then they received quail miraculously, which was kind of a mixed blessing because the quail was really a kind of a judgment on them for their whining about not having any meat. Then again, they received water miraculously. They were delivered from the enemies that they encountered. And finally, they were brought to the mountain where God would give them the law. They were led by a fire and a cloud. They saw a lot of things. And this is where we take up at the foot of the mountain with the people. And it says in Exodus 32 that the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which were in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so the people are saying, Make us an idol. And Aaron says, Okay, tear off the earrings. Now there is a Hebrew word for remove, and this wasn't the word. This was the word tear. And all I, the only reason why I point that out to you is, I don't know how violent this was, but these people really wanted an idol. And they were willing to quickly amass a big pile of gold so that Aaron could craft them one. So they tore off their gold earrings and they, ta- and they brought them to Aaron and he took them and he fashioned them with a graving tool. He melted it down and he fashioned an idol for them. And the idol that he fashioned was in the shape of a calf. Now where did Aaron get this idea? Today we'd go on the internet and say, you know, popular idol forms to fashion. Where did Aaron get the idea to make a calf for the people? Well, he got the idea from Egypt. Because the Egyptians worshipped a false god that was in the shape of a bull. They had a cow god. And so... They worshipped the god Apis, and it was a fertility god. And it was also understood that this god was kind of the embodiment of, the, of dead pharaohs. So there's kind of a fertility reincarnation kind of an idea. So here you have Israelites at the foot of the mountain, and they're asking Aaron for an idol to worship, and he crafts them one, and what he crafts them is an idol that was the same idol that they all knew when they were back in Egypt. They knew this God. And Aaron says, tomorrow will be a feast. Aaron is, you know, overlapping. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. There'll be a feast to the Lord. And the, the God, the, uh, the idol, becomes the representation of the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. Which is very confusing but not to the people because they were just really hungry to have something physical that they could literally worship in front of. So the next day they got up and they had burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And what this likely was was just a big orgy. Just a wicked orgy is most likely what was going on there. And so Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God speaks to Moses, and he says, they've done it. You've got to to get down there. They've already rebelled against me, and they've made an idol. And God is angry. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. Right now, I'm just going to destroy them, and I'm going to make your descendants into my people, Moses. I'm just going to destroy them and start over. And at that point, Moses pleads with God. He intercedes for the people. And he causes God, he pleads with God, he's an intercessor, and he says, God, remember, remember your promise to Abraham. Remember your promise to the patriarchs. Don't do this. Remember your promise so that the nations will know. And the Bible says God said, okay, okay, I'm not going to do this, but go down to them. So Moses went down the mountain, and on the way he picked up Joshua, 
And they got down near the camp, and they heard the sound, and Joshua said, well, whoa, there's a, there's a, a war in the camp. It sounds like a war. And as he got closer, he said, well, no, no, uh, uh, it's not like a war. It's, it's, more like, uh, it's more like singing. And as they came near, they saw the golden calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and scattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it into powder, and he put it on the water, and then he made the people drink it. And he went to Aaron, and he said, what did you do? And Aaron said, well, you know, they pressed me. And so I told him, you know, give me your gold. And I took the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Now we all understand this, right? Because that's the same kind of explanation we give when we sin. If you're a young person here today, right? Do you realize, younger people, that the older people around you don't sin? And we would never give an excuse like this. But, you know, when you're in the living room and and you're explaining the broken window and you say, well, you know, there was this ball and the next thing I knew, the ball was outside and the window was broken. I threw it in the fire and out came a golden calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, he saw that they were a derision among their enemies. Everybody could see, the people around could see that these people were out of control. Wacko. He called the sons of Levi to him and he said, he said to them, strap on your swords and go out and start killing people. Now this is one of the most uncomfortable scriptures in the Bible because we all have problems with this idea of what Moses does at God's command then. He tells them to put on a sword and go out and start killing people. And so they do. And we don't know if We know they killed men, but we don't know if they indiscriminately killed men as they came across them. Moses said, kill your neighbors, kill your friends, kill your relatives. We don't know if they indiscriminately killed men or if uh, John Calvin says he's fairly confident that they killed the ringleaders. I think there were 3,000 killed. And we look at that and we think, oh, that's horrible. That's awful. And the reality is, it's not that God did something wrong there by commanding Moses to have those men do that. God didn't do something wrong. It isn't bad because God did something wrong. We think it's bad because we're bad. And we don't understand the holiness and righteousness of God. And the fact that he was kind because at Moses' intercession, he didn't wipe out everybody. And he certainly had a right to. So they went and they killed the people. And again, 
Moses intercedes because God is still, he's still angry with the people. And Moses intercedes and he says, look, if, if you'll just forgive them, you can take my name out of your book. Please, don't destroy them. And God says, look, no, I'm not taking your name out of the book. Whoever, sins against, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So it sounds like then there was another plague from God, but it didn't wipe them out. And so you have the Israelites sinning against God. How soon had they sinned? How soon had they sinned? Well, you know, you could almost see it like a car driving down a country road. The car's driving down the country road. You've been in it, right? And you're just glad that you're not behind the car where all the dust is flying up and you can't even see. Well, it's almost like these people had just got to the foot of the mountain and the cloud of dust was just kind of filtering over top of them. That's how soon it was from the time they saw God do all the things he had done for them. And already they were willing to toss it all aside. In that much time, they were willing to compromise. In that much time, they were willing to take a golden calf. After they'd been brought out of Egypt, after they'd been delivered from bondage, after they'd been protected from their enemies, while they had the presence of the Lord in a fire and a cloud, while they had the leadership and intercession of Moses, while they had the gospel, though veiled, while they had their community of faith, while they had water, while they had manna, while they had quail, while they had the water from the rock, while they had Jesus Christ present with them at the time. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, it says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. They had Jesus Christ with them. These Israelites coming out of Egypt. They had something good. No, they had something incredible. And they were willing to let it go. They were willing to let it go. I was reading a story about, uh, about uh, this family from Canada in 1973. In 1973, they had a farmhouse. And they wanted to sell it. Okay, fine. So they're going to sell their farmhouse. And what do we do when we sell a house? The buyers come and they negotiate with us, right? And they want to, they want to negotiate what comes with the house. Anybody ever do this? Okay. Only three people have ever bought a house. That's amazing. So the buyers come and they negotiate. And so what do you negotiate? Well, you negotiate over... Uh, you negotiate over curtain rods and appliances, right? And window treatments and, uh, I don't know, maybe a shed out back. Sometimes strange things get tossed into the mix. 
Well, this family selling the house was asked by the people buying if they could have this picture hanging on the wall. It had been hanging in their farmhouse for years, and the people buying were happy just to find a buyer. I've been in a house sale situation where I was happy to find a buyer, and I know several of you have and would be now happy to find a buyer, right? So what they did was they said, okay, you can keep the painting. So the people bought the house, and the painting stayed on the wall. And 30 years later, in about 2003, the people who owned the house saw the, uh, looked at the painting and they thought, you know, it's a real painting. I wonder if it has any value. So they took the painting and they went to um, an art dealer somewhere in Canada. And the art dealer, they, you know, they lifted the painting up. They said, well, we have this painting. You just want to know if it's worth anything. And so the art dealer just about fainted. Why? Because the painting was a long-lost waterhouse painting called Gather Ye Roses While Ye May. And it had been gone for a century. And nobody knew where it was. And the guy said, this is, this is, it has some value. He said, it's probably worth three million pounds, British pounds, four to five million U.S. dollars. Now, I stayed in a house once that had a deer head on the wall, (laughs) but nothing like this. The point of the illustration is that we often don't know what we have until it's gone. You can't fault this Canadian couple for selling their valuable painting with their house, can you? After all, they were just ignorant. And that's true. They were ignorant. Think of how absurd it would be if the prior owners of the farmhouse had sold the painting as nonchalantly as the curtain rods after someone had told them that it was worth $4 million. Absurd, huh? But they didn't know. And probably, if you think about it, it was 30 years before the purchasers knew. You're thinking to yourself, if I were the, if I were the sellers, I hope I would be dead by that time. You know? Because <laughs> they're probably not going to share with you. But think about it. No one would cast it aside that nonchalantly afterwards. While we would never do this with valuable art, that's exactly what the Israelites did with the pearls of favor that God had given to them. There they were at the foot of the mountain. They knew what God had done, and before the dust had settled from their trip, they tossed him aside. They tossed him aside. They forsook the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah 2 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you all know what a cistern is? They used to be very common. Houses had cisterns, even in this area. They would would be a big uh, vault made out of cement, usually recessed in the ground beside the house, sometimes underneath. 
And the water from the, from the roof would drain into the gutters and then into a pipe and then down into this vault that was sealed with uh, tar inside so that the water wouldn't leak out. And it held water, and it filled up and filled up and filled up, and it became a source of water for a lot of things. It used to be used as drinking water, but it's not as clean to drink as water that we would get from the city pipes. Right? Truly, it wasn't as clean as that water. And so this was a cistern, and this very common thing. People you would have cisterns, especially in dry areas, where they would, they would dig out a pit in the ground to hold water so that they could be kept alive through dry times by the water that was in the cistern. And God says, I am your God, and I am the fountain of living water. And it's a theme all through the scripture, isn't it? Jesus was the water that... that gave life to the Israelites in the wilderness. God says in Jeremiah, I am the fountain of living water. Jesus says to the woman at the well, what? If you knew what kind of water I have, you would ask me for a drink. Right? And so God says, look, you you dig these cisterns, you, you try to get your own water, and you try to fill your own cisterns, but your cisterns aren't any good. They leak. They don't hold water at all. And you've tossed aside what was good for what is worthless. And that's what they had done at the foot of the mountain. Well, it's a good thing for us that we don't live in the Old Testament where those types of things were possible. Where stupid kinds of of activities like that were possible, where people, you know, it's a good thing for us, isn't it, that we don't live in in a time when it's possible for us to toss away the good for something that's worthless. Isn't that good? You all think so, right? And you all know I'm setting you up. Because we live in the New Testament era, right? And so now, uh, we're not susceptible to such rebellion. Well, what's it say? You know, in the New Testament, these people, these Israelites in the wilderness, are always held up as a warning to us. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 8, that I read earlier about Jesus being the rock from which came the spiritual water that the Israelites drank, goes on to say in verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us, the New Testament people. They they happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, which was what I read you earlier. He says, don't be this. Hebrews 3, starting at verse 10, therefore I was angry with this generation, that is the generation in the wilderness, And said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then verse 12, speaking to the New Testament people. That would be us, right? Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Okay, a warning. But of course it really doesn't mean anything because we don't need to be warned, right? I mean, why do we have warnings anyway? A week ago, maybe or so, we had a, a torn, the middle of the night, you know, we hear the, it's, it's torrential rain and lightning and thunder. You guys remember this if you were here in town? And so in the middle of the night comes the tornado uh, siren from here at Grandview School. We live over here in this house. So the tornado siren rings, and my youngest is already in the bedroom, and then my oldest comes down. What's that noise? Right? And so everybody, all the women are worried, and of course I don't worry because I'm stronger than a tornado. So everybody's worried about the tornado. Dad, get on the internet. See where the tornado is. Dad, what room are we going to hide in? Where are we going to keep ourselves while the tornado comes over? And I'm thinking, I don't know where we're going to hide. I don't know. The house is on a slab. We're all just going to swept off together. (laughs) So I got on the internet, and I saw where the tornado warning was, and I thought, oh, good, it's over Dan Sparks' house. I don't have to worry about it. So I put everybody else to bed, and we went back to sleep. But why do we have tornado warnings? Why do we do it? We have warnings because the people who watch over such things know that conditions are right for the formation of tornadoes. Conditions are right. And so we need warnings, right? Well, we have warnings in Scripture because... Conditions are right for us to crave evil things and to have our hearts hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so God warns us because it's possible, very possible. And he warns us away from it. What are the conditions? Well, we have deceitful hearts. We have a world all around us that's calling us to enticements away from the living God. We are willing We're willing so easily to dig broken cisterns and fashion golden calves. So willing, so easily. And so our text, in our text, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he gives them one of these warnings, and it's a real warning. And he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simplicity means like singularity or singleness. What he was saying to them was so singular and so clear and so good that, it was, that the, the obviousness of it was unavoidable once it was declared to you. And yet, just like the obviousness of the, of the cloud and the pillar and the water parting and, and the manna and the quail and the water coming out of a rock. Now, that's pretty interesting and pretty obvious. was obvious to the Israelites, yet they were quick to, to just leave it. And so we are also. And Paul knew that these guys were also. And he said, you're quick to, live, to leave the singularity of what I've said to you. For if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Just fine, okay. Okay. Golden calf, okay. That's fine. Just fine. Paul is worried about the Corinthians. 
He's worried that they'll be deceived and led astray from pure devotion to Christ. Why does he have fear? Why? Because he knows how easily Israel in the Old Testament cast God aside. And he knows that the Corinthians would easily bear with a different gospel. They would bear with it beautifully, is what he says. You'll bear with it beautifully. And he goes so far in his pleading to them that he ends up sounding foolish. Uh, He ends up talking about, uh, about himself. He ends up talking about Oh, what? He talks about his, uh, uh, he, he talks about how he came to them and didn't take any money. He talks about how he had to rob other people so that he could teach them the gospel. He talks about how he didn't, he wasn't a burden to anybody while he was there. He talks about his, his work and all the things he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. He talked about his brain and how smart he was. And it sound, it gets to sound foolish. He even realizes this is getting to sound foolish. But I'm worried about you. Don't you realize? Don't you realize? Because already, all around them, there were false ministries. There were false apostles. Do you guys know what a knockoff is? Everybody, who knows what a knockoff is? I'm amazed that all the children know what knockoffs are. They can't add, but they all know what knockoffs are. Right? Well, you can add. We have smart children. Knockoffs. Already in the church, knockoffs. Paul, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ had barely started, and we have knockoffs already. And they're all around Deceiving the people. And Paul's concerned about them. He's worried about them. And so he issues a warning. He knows that they could let their treasure go. Because they didn't know what they had. Or maybe they let their treasure go because they did know what they had. But they thought they saw something better. I'll put this down and I'll, and I'll get that. Because it looks glittery. It's a golden calf. It looks nice. It has more tangible... I'll let it go. Well, we have to ask ourselves if we know what we have. I've often told people leaving this church as they were leaving, I would I say sometimes I say to them, uh, you're not finished cooking yet. You're not finished cooking yet. And what do I mean by that? I mean that I am, I am fearful that they're not grounded enough, that they're not established enough in Jesus Christ and in the gospel and in God's word and in discipleship and faithfulness, that they aren't there strong enough that they can go away from this place and survive. I'm worried. And with some of them, I'm a little hopeful because they at least seem to, as I give them warnings as they leave and go off to grad school or go off to start their job somewhere, as, I, as they leave and I give them warnings, some of them actually uh, look afraid. And that's a little encouraging, encouraging to me because I realize that they actually might see that they, that they have found something in Jesus Christ and in the gospel that they don't want to lose and they want to have it wherever they go. And they're a little afraid that 
they might not be able to find it that easily. And others, I realize, just don't have a clue what I'm saying. They, they, uh, they don't seem to be worried at all. And as I talked to them, I, I remember one man who left this church, and he was an adult, actually. And, and uh, I remember it's been seven years ago, and I looked at him, and I said, I don't think you should leave. I think it's wrong for you to leave. And he didn't have to leave. He wasn't going somewhere else. He doesn't, didn't have a job he had to go to. And so he didn't have to leave this fellowship. But I said, I don't think you should go. I think it's a mistake for you to leave. And you may hear me say that and think, well, that sounds so egotistical. How could you actually look at somebody and say something like that? How could you look at somebody and say, uh, they shouldn't go? Do you think nobody should ever go away from here? No, that's not what I think. It pains me when people leave. Every time they leave, whatever the circumstances, it seems to pain me. But... That's not what I think. No, I know people have to leave. I know we have a responsibility to send people out. So what was it? Why why can I say such a thing? Why can I tell people that this is where they should go to church? And it's not egotistical. It's because I'm a pastor and it's because I love them. And it's because I know the kingdom of God. And I understand what Paul understood when he was writing to the Corinthians because I feel the same things and I want to give the same warnings because I'm afraid that they'll settle for some kind of knockoff. I'm afraid that they'll get out of here and be enticed immediately to fashion a golden calf with their lives because there are apostles and there are ministries all over the place and they're calling you to have Bible studies and to come to conferences and to do this and that and the other thing. And I know enough about the truth of the kingdom of God and his church to know that it's a rare thing to see the church of Jesus Christ working. Really working today. Oh, it's there. God has his 7,000 that have not bowed to Baal. But I'm telling you, It's not something you just automatically take for granted. It isn't everywhere. There's knockoffs all over the place. And so as pastors, we are concerned. We are concerned as we watch you go and as we watch you being called by the enticements in your lives. We're concerned, and it makes us fearful, and so we warn. Some of us don't know what we have and don't know that we don't know it. In other words, some of us think we know what we have, but we really don't. And other of us, other of us know what we have, and yet we are not committed to it enough to keep us away from our eye wandering over here. In other words, we, we don't really feast on it like we ought to feast on it. And this is really hard for me to, to describe to you because it's like taking you and, and uh, uh, it's like taking my, uh, uh, my whole emotions and my heart and trying to transplant it into you. But some of you know exactly what I mean. Because some people come and worship here and they, and they, they uh, go through the service 
and they get done and they say, what a bummer. Now, we all say, what a bummer, and, it, and we all say, uh, <laughs> I, I, I always say to people, everybody is equally offended when they leave. Everybody's offended when they leave. It's just that some people are offended and they've looked to Jesus Christ because they know that they ought to be offended and they welcome the offense because they know it will cause them to flee to the good stuff. And other, other people, they're offended and they go away because they're just mad that, that I didn't say something helpful. And I'm thinking, what do you think the gospel of Jesus Christ is? But of course it's because we don't really see the value. Our eyes haven't been opened. The, 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 our hearts haven't, our ears haven't been opened to hear. And that's why it's said so oftentimes in the scripture, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Right? And so you go away from here and you think, well, what did I get? What was it? Well, you watch people. Do you watch people on Sunday morning when we worship? Do you watch them? Do you ever look around and see them as the tears are pouring down their faces? And you wonder, what do they have? What did Israel have before they came to the mountain? Have you looked around and seen what you have? We have the gospel. Now revealed to us. We have delivery from bondage to sin. We have protection from our enemies. We have the presence of God. We have leadership and intercession. We have a community of faith. We have Christ. We have Jesus Christ. And you say, where is he? Where is he? Where is this Jesus Christ? You say, where is he? Because you guys never, you never tell me. I don't feel good about it because where is he? And I say, wait a minute. He's sitting there beside you. He's the one that's teaching you that's forgiving you, that's rebuking you, that's hearing your confession of sin, that's healing you, that's loving you, that's feeding you, that's clothing you, that's purifying you, that takes care of you, that cries when you cry, that laughs when you laugh, that holds you when you heard the disappointing news, that helps you move. The life and vitality of of the church Jesus lives here, in us, powerfully, gifting us, powerfully, to do stuff for one another. And so, one of you, I don't know who it is, prays. There's somebody that we don't know in this church. It's not the person you think of that's the prayer, let me tell you. But there's somebody in this church that God knows. And you get held together by their intercession for you. And there's somebody that gives so that you have food. And there's somebody that will come and counsel you for hours upon hours. And there's somebody that watches your kids when it's difficult. There's somebody that's doing all of this stuff. There are men who work and work and work to bring you worship songs that are fantastic. And this is Jesus Christ, the gifting of God. He lives here. He is the head. 
We are all connected to him. He has assembled us together for his pleasure and for our purity. You have a treasure. I have a treasure. Do you know that you have it? Have you begun to see what is good? Hebrews says solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so we can't simply know good, though, can we? I mean, that is, we can't simply know this is good, this is evil. If that was all it is, then we would uh, uh, we'd just make a list. The elders would get together, and we just compile a list. And then we would send it out on email for you and say, now these are the good things and these are the evil things, and now you can know them. No, it's inextricably connected to the doing of the good and the rejecting of the evil. And so it has to be something that's accomplished in us. So what is our church? Well, our church is this place where we are calling people to reject evil and to cling to good. And so the pastors and the elders and the deacons and the godly women and the Sunday school teachers and the youth workers and etc. and etc. in this church are all here to this purpose. To call you to do good and to know good and to worship God. And so this is a recurring theme in the New Testament. In fact, you can just do a, a word search on your, on your uh, online Bible or whatever and look up the word, put in the phrase, what is good? Specifically, that sequence of words, what is good? And then just look them up and see what the Bible says about what is good. But I'm going to just read one of them in closing. And that is from Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. What does that mean? Well, it means, it literally means be glued to. Right? Super glue yourself to what is good. That's what it says. Super glue yourself to it. And that's what I would call you to this morning. That's just my heart. I hear you as I talk to you. I hear reports of what you say. And we are all tempted to these enticements around us. And we're tempted to this thing. And we're tempted to that thing. And we think this would make a nice cistern. And we think that would make a nice golden calf. And we start to go this way and that way. And the pastors and the elders, we know what's going on in your lives. And it hurts us because we think, if they go that way, they'll be lost. If they go that way, they'll receive God's judgment. If they go that way, their souls will be destroyed. So I'm just calling you and pleading with you. Cling to what is good. Understand what you have. Don't give it up easily for anything. Don't give it up at all. Keep it. And that doesn't mean you have to stay here forever. You understand? It's not what I'm saying. You have to stay 
with Jesus Christ and with his church and with that fellowship and with that gospel forever, persevering. And that means you align your lives and you make decisions. Everything is decided upon based on how well it will keep you clinging to what is good. And anything that would call you away, you've got to, you've got to dump it. I don't care if it's a job. I don't care if it's a boyfriend. I don't care if it's a, you know, a, an interesting Bible study somewhere. I don't care. Whatever it is, dump it. Because Jesus lives here in his people. As imperfect as we are and as awful as we are, as stumblingly and awfully as we progress forward as believers together, Jesus is pleased to live in us and to accomplish his, his, accomplish his purpose in us. So cling to him. Cling to what is good.